Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. So Marie Scully, you're joining us as a haematologist at UCLH to talk about the impact of COVID on coagulation. What are the risks of thrombosis in COVID patients? So that's become very topical particularly over the last few weeks as we've had more information coming out from a number of countries. The first thing to say about the UK is that we do, in hospital, adopt thromboprophylaxis normally for all patients. So that's our baseline standard, which is not the same for all countries in the world. So patients in hospital in other countries, they were seeing a significant increase in the rate of thrombosis, but partially because they did not adopt what we normally do. That's not to say that it will stop all the blood clots that we're seeing in COVID. So it's not a criticism, it was an observation. So out of China, they were identifying about 25% of patients who had severe COVID had some sort of venous thromboembolic event. They're not necessarily different to what we normally see. They're DVTs, extended DVTs, but significant pulmonary emboli. And aside from VTE, there was also an an increased perceived arterial thrombotic event, so strokes, problems with hearts. And indeed, more and more as time went on, as patients were very sick, more problems with the kidneys. But the lungs are the primary focus in COVID. But we need to understand the type of patients we're talking about. The majority of patients do not come into hospital and they may be unwell at home, but they do not have what we were now describing as severe COVID. So that's the necessity to be admitted for some sort of lung intervention, be it high dose oxygen, CPAP or indeed intubation. However, there have been a lot of patients who have attended emergency departments in the world, but particularly in the UK, we realise that they have risk factors that put them at increased risk of having thrombosis. That is high inflammatory markers, high temperature, immobility. And so for that reason, it's been suggested and many places are undertaking thromboprophylaxis for a couple of weeks in patients who are seen in ED and are discharged. So, well, why don't we normally do that? Well, in fact, there is evidence that we should be doing that. So there's been studies in the past of medically ill patients and what we should be considering and their risk factors for thrombosis. It's just we don't normally do it. But there is a specification now that we should be considering for everyone that comes to ED. So then you've got the inpatients, and they can be divided depending on where they are within any hospital trust. So essentially, let's just break them down into those in intensive care and not in intensive care. That doesn't mean that it's less severe if they're not in intensive care. Within those areas, we need to identify then the patients who are at the greatest risk. So those that are requiring most intervention from a respiratory wise and have the highest inflammatory markers and are more likely to need intubation and ventilation. And for those groups of patients, the UK has pretty much adopted, without evidence base, but on good clinical acumen, almost everyone has adopted intermediate dose or increased dose thromboprophylaxis because their risk of thrombosis is so high. 
and that's based again on all the parameters we've discussed but the inflammatory parameters that we're seeing in covid are not something that we've experienced before how do you scan a patient that's prone to ITU? You can't. you can't. So what you would do is either you do it clinically and you just start them on treatment dose. And people don't feel that comfortable about that. Scan the legs, because generally, if you're going to have a clot in your lungs, you'll have something in your legs. Right. If there's nothing there, what then they were doing was doing echocardiograms. Because normally... If the clot was big enough, you would get damage to the right ventricle. Unfortunately, COVID causes its own problems with the right ventricle. So it was quickly understood that that was not indicative of a, 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 a PE. So we can't, anyway, things have calmed down a bit or altered as we've understood the disease. If they need to go for a scan, it, they will make it happen. If they're critically ill, you just put them on the treatment. It's not going to hurt them. Yeah. And I suppose the things that we've been doing in the background, trying not to make too much of a fuss, is we're just checking all the patients every day to make sure that the level of anticoagulation fits with drugs, kidneys, platelets, mm. coagulants. It's such a balancing act, isn't it? Is it is a bit think... of a balancing act. How? And they do have enough to do sorting out all the other things mm. that they need to sort you know it's only one part of it but it's quite an important mm. part so I, I'm, we're looking at the number of thromboses during this pandemic i'm not sure that there's been an excessive number of vtes since we've started this intermediate do, you know dosing regime and I guess you can already compare it to international data where they don't use VT prophylaxis right. and you're thinking presumably we're doing a bit better than that. Yeah. I mean, it's a UK-wide policy that's not the same everywhere else. Um, but a, a lot of countries realise that patients with COVID need to be on at least thromboprophylaxis. So even for those countries that don't use it, they realise that these patients do need it. We've kind of gone up another notch. So why is it happening? Well, unfortunately, nobody knows the answer to that because nobody knows why patients become so very, very sick. And it is a small proportion, as I said, of the total. What we do know is it's more likely to be in men. It's more likely to affect non-Caucasian men. They're usually much sicker, but women as well. Um, obviously, age has a part to play, but not exclusively. They are at the upper limits of BMI, so they're not significantly overweight, but often slightly higher BMI. The inflammatory component and the disease that we're seeing in these patients has never really been experienced before. Their inflammatory parameters in the laboratory are extremely high. The way that they're having to be treated in intensive care and in high dependency areas is not something that anybody's really been used to before. It's like a new disease, the way that their patient's oxygenation is. And that's then compounded with, have they got a blood clot or not in their lungs? And often they're too unwell to bring to a scanner to determine. And for the first half of this disease, certainly at UCLH, it just wasn't an option to bring them to see if they had a blood clot. So you had to empirically treat them with low molecular weight heparin 
at treatment doses. And it didn't seem to cause the normal problems we would normally worry about, like the platelet count dropping, coagulation going off, because we didn't see any of that. It was a very, very prothrombotic condition. So let's bring that back then to what I normally look at after, which is aside from hemostasis, is patients with thrombotic microangiopathies. Now, the, none of these patients have the laboratory features of a thrombotic microangiopathy, so they do not, they are not anemic, they are not particularly cyto thrombocytopenic at all. They have a normal coagulation screen, but they do have increase of these inflammatory parameters, so LDH, ferritin, CRPs, and D-dimers. And we do see that in TTPs and other TMAs. We don't generally measure them because we know they're raised and we're not going to particularly act on them per se. So there is a comparison. We're used to dealing with a group of patients with, that are hyperinflammatory and are prothrombotic. The difference is here with COVID, we put them on low molecular weight heparin. There is no current trials or evidence for the best dose of anticoagulation for any of these patients from anywhere in the world. A lot of it is descriptive for obvious reasons, so we have to use clinical acumen. So what are we doing with the patients in hospital? Because they undergo a number of different problems, so their kidneys may deteriorate, they may need to go on filtration, we have to adapt the doses for filtration because their kidneys are not working. But then what was discovered is that the, the circuits for the filters just kept clotting. Time and time, every few hours, they kept clotting compounded by running out of the citrate filters, which are the preferred ones. So even though we bring down the dose of anticoagulation because their kidneys are not working as well, we've had to go back up again to try and make sure the filters work. So it's a balancing act, but what we're not seeing is excessive bleeding. So let's have a look at what kind of coagulation abnormalities we're seeing in the laboratory and in the patient. We've looked at a number of these um, in UCLH patients, um, particularly, but not exclusively, in intensive care unit. So the baseline coagulation screen, the PT, APTT and the fibrinogen are not abnormal, as in a, like a DIC type picture, which you would expect with ongoing sepsis. And in fact, the fibrinogen levels are really very, very high. The other parameter that we can get very easily is a D-dimer, which is usually undertaken to differentiate if somebody's had a blood clot or not, one of the reasons. These are really very, very high. And the level is not indicative of whether they've had a blood clot or not. So you cannot use it alone to dictate thrombosis. Some people have suggested you can, you definitely cannot. All you can dictate from very, very high D-dimers, in the longer term, one of the Chinese groups said that if it, the level's above six times the upper limit of normal, it was associated with mortality, but that's in conjunction with a whole load of other parameters. So again, it's an inflammatory component of the disease. There has been reports on the histopathology, and there's not been a lot put out, and it's primarily been in the lung. And the surprising thing that was found from the histopathology are these microvascular thrombi. So that, again, is not something you would normally see with an infection-type condition. That and the big clots 
So there's been some argument, is this a thrombotic microangiopathy or is it not? Most of the TMA experts say it's not a thrombotic microangiopathy. However, we diagnose TMAs based on, as I said at the beginning, haemoglobin, platelets, LDH, ADAMPS 13, complement levels, autoimmune levels, all sorts of things. That's a clinical diagnosis we can do if patients come in. But the other way of diagnosing TMAs is histologically, and I think that's a bit that people have forgotten about. And we know of different types of thromboses, microthrombosis, depending on the type of condition you have. So if you've got cancer, you can have one type, usually adenocarcinomas, infections, do another. TTP is very specific, and this is not TTP. Or if you've got an inflammatory condition, like an autoimmune condition or infection, it may give features which are not dissimilar to what we're seeing in these PM findings. The long and short of it is nobody understands pathogenesis of this disease. What we do understand, I think, is that it's an inflammatory thrombotic disorder, which is likely to be hitting the epithelial, endothelial cells, releasing loads of these factors which are just continually causing damage, primarily focused in the lung, but not exclusively. So we are seeing cardiac involvement, we're seeing kidney involvement, we're seeing brain involvement, and it can, it's all related to the COVID syndrome. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> 15 hours later. <laughs> <laughs>